Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the blessing to serve you. Thank you for the grace you've shown in the way our service, my service and others, has res- uh, resulted, Father, in a harvest of students, of those who come to know you and those who have been discipled to be uh, in a deeper walk with you. None of those things were by our effort or by our strength or wisdom. You've done that work, both in the delivery of a message and its effective outcome in the hearts of those who heard. But what a blessing it is, Father, to be a partner in it. And I thank you that there's days that I've partnered in teaching. There are days in which others have partnered through other efforts. There's weekly efforts or weekly opportunity for others to gather in here and listen as a participant. In all these ways, Father, we are blessed to be included in your work. We let the word, Father, speak for itself, but we endeavor to explain it clearly. And I pray that you would give me the ability to do that tonight by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We've begun our study of law in Exodus. We are studying the first ten laws, or the commandments, as you know them, of course. Though the Bible teaches that the whole law of Moses is an indivisible unit, nevertheless, these first ten laws are distinctive, and we've noted that last week. They deserve to be considered separately from the other 603, in the sense that they are different in scope and in style. There's a reason why the 613 start with these ten. So we do well to acknowledge and understand why they're where they are and why they're distinctive. But their distinctiveness is not an argument for divorcing them from the rest of the law and to expect believers to honor them in some different way than the rest of the law. And we covered that in the last couple of weeks. The believer in the new covenant receives a new and better law, one that's written on their hearts by the Holy Spirit. That new law replaces the old law by incorporating all of the requirements of the old law, yet in better ways. To hold on to the old once the new has arrived would be something like a person determined to hold on to their horse and buggy when the automobile has shown up. The New Testament law adds an infinite number of additional commands and instructions in keeping with the holiness of God and with the way the Spirit draws us toward that holiness. The sanctification of a New Testament saint is accomplished by two principal forces, which we studied last week. First, the Spirit of God indwelling every believer is the agent of change. He teaches, he convicts, he empowers us to follow what he gives us in righteousness. The second principal force is the Word of God, which is the fuel for the Holy Spirit to accomplish that work in our hearts. Without a steady diet of the Word of God, a saint finds their spiritual growth stunted. And yet, even with Bible study, like the kind we do tonight, it still falls to the believer to respond to the work of the Spirit, following him into sanctification. That's why the writer of Hebrews calls the Word of God the sword of the Spirit. To this point, we have examined not only the purposes of the law and and how the New Testament believers to relate to it and how it relates to the law of Christ, but we also got into the first two of those first ten laws, the Ten Commandments. We looked at the first, which says, have no gods besides the Lord, and the second, which was to not make graven images or idols that substitute for worship of the Lord. Both are obviously closely related, and together they command us or demand that we follow the Lord with our whole heart. And that led us to the law of Christ, which is now the law we are bound by, which demands that we love and obey God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength without challenge, without reservation. So by what we've been commanded in the new, we encompass and go beyond even 
what was provided for in the old in the case of those two commandments. So now we move to the third. We're going to reread. Last week I actually read all ten of the commandments as we began to study them, but we won't repeat the whole passage in total. We'll just do it in sections. So tonight we're going to study each commandment in turn through the next four. And as we do that, we'll look at the related passage. So we start with the third commandment in Exodus 20, verse 7. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. This command is directed at restricting Israel's speech or any form of communication concerning the name of God. The name of God. The name of God was spoken to Moses, remember, at the burning bush. Then from there, it was repeated within Israel. Moses communicating the name to to others in Israel, and they likewise communicating it within the camp of Israel. We learned back in the earlier part of this book of Exodus that the name was I Am, as it was expressed to Moses. And that had a certain sound in the Hebrew language. But because the nation was so concerned with the possibility of violating the third commandment, not to take that name in vain, they adopted a practice within the nation of Israel of never actually speaking his name at all. And in written form, they removed the vowels of the sound of his name, which was what they would write. And so with the vowels taken out of that name, you end up in the Hebrew language with an unpronounceable name, which was the intent so that no one could read it and pronounce it and potentially take it in vain. After the vowels were removed, God's name became Y-H-W-H, which has become known as the tetragrammaton, which is simply a word for that special four-letter combination. That shortened form of his word is commonly pronounced Yahweh, but in truth, we don't know how his name was pronounced or what it sounded like. It's really no reason to think we've figured it out. We've just come up with something we can use. So as a result of that tradition, the tradition being that the sound of his name has been lost to history, because of that tradition, it has become literally impossible to take God's name in vain within Israel in the most literal sense. That is to say his name in such a way that it is taken in vain. So the law said you may not take God's name and use it in a worthless, casual manner in vain. Their solution to that was we remove his name from our vocabulary And then we can do whatever we want and we're okay. But that doesn't prevent men from violating the spirit of the law, certainly. Jesus, for example, condemned the Pharisees for thinking that they were holy by swearing by things that had spiritual significance. But then they would go out of their way to avoid swearing by other things that they thought might run up against the third commandment, that might violate the third commandment. But these distinctions were arbitrary. So arbitrary, in fact, that he said this in Matthew 23:15. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, what is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears by the altar and by everything on it. 
And whoever swears by the temple swears by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In this account, the Pharisees were willing to swear by the temple, but only if you limited that to swearing by the gold in the temple or swearing by some other set of rules that they had come up with. It was purely arbitrary. Likewise, they would allow themselves to swear by the altar, but not by the offering. What they were saying was, if you swear by the offering, it's like swearing with the name of God, and so you're obligated to keep it. But if you swear by the altar, you're not obligated to keep what you say. In other words, you can go back on your word, because the altar doesn't count for much. They had these stupid rules, so that they could say, I swear by the altar of God. And then they could come back later and say, yeah, but our rules say that doesn't count, so you can't hold me by what I just said. So that's the hypocrisy that Jesus is pointing out, right? Jesus pointed out the rules were stupid, they're contradictory, and they were simply an avenue to allow for their hypocrisy. If they wanted to take an oath, binding themselves to some representation of God, then they were effectively binding themselves to God himself. That was the conclusion Jesus said. What's in your heart? An effort to substantiate your own word with the authority of God. But to do it in these trivial ways so as to say to yourself, well, at least I didn't violate any laws or commandments, or, and I can't be bound to what I said. If you're going to use these symbols of God, then the whole thing just becomes a representation of God, and you might as well use the name of God because it's effectively the same thing. As Jesus said in Matthew 5:33, Again, you have heard the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oaths at all either by heaven, or for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. In forgetting the literal name of God, and barring it from being written out, and in contriving these silly rules for what authority you could swear by and what authority you couldn't, all the while trying to avoid some legal definition of violation of the third commandment. They were simply showing a heart that wanted to do the wrong thing, but just not be able to be accused of it. To have an excuse that let them escape condemnation. The point of the law goes far beyond whether or not we are saying God's name literally in the wrong way. How far beyond does it truly go? Well, the New Testament law, this greater, broader law of Christ, is where we go to find out what was really behind this commandment in the first place. What was God actually seeking in terms of holiness when he gave this commandment? Well, James says in James 3, 5, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, here's where it connects to the third commandment, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. So the law of Christ teaches us that when we speak ill of another person who was created in the image of God, we are violating the spirit of the third commandment. 
Because the third commandment stipulates that we not diminish the name of God in any way. In any way. The New Testament law extends this commandment to its full purpose and its full measure in this sense. The name of God is more than just a word. You see, the nation of Israel had reduced it to merely being a word which trivialized it in and of itself. In the ancient times, particularly in the ancient East, the name of someone was far greater than simply a tag or a title you gave to a person. And the speaking of his name meant far more than just identifying who he was. Names were the embodiment of the person, of their character, of their reputation, of the quality of their work. Everything was in a name. We have a word in marketing today, we call it brand. Think of name in that culture as your brand. The Lord's name represented his goodness and his perfection in his work. So when someone speaks a degrading thing about another person, you are speaking to someone who is in the likeness of God in a degrading way, and thereby you're degrading the Lord's work and therefore the Lord himself. The commandment, as it was intended in spirit, was to appreciate not just God, but all that is God's. That's why Jesus said, don't swear by anything in heaven or on earth, because it's all God's. It extends to him as a critique. My wife is very good to remind me that when I critique a work of the house that's under her authority, I'm indirectly critiquing her. That's a fair conclusion. And God's saying, we malign him as we malign his work. Now, granted, the man or woman you see on earth today is a man or woman who is flawed by their sin. And God is not the author of sin. But Scripture, the New Testament Scripture makes clear that's not an excuse. That doesn't give us license to then turn and say, well, because men and women are not perfected in the way God created them originally, that that somehow gives us license to say bad things about them. Scripture clearly says that is not an excuse. There is rebuke. There is discernment. There is chastisement and discipline. And life is not only about saying nice things to people. I can say negative things to people in a loving way that has as its intent good purposes, holiness purposes. But James clearly is speaking about an entirely different problem. He talks about the tongue is a world of iniquity, he says, of sin. So he's talking here about sinful uses of the tongue, which then arrive at effectively a cursing of God. Because when we curse something made in the likeness of God, we are effectively maligning his work. So are we under the third commandment of the Old Testament law? No. We are under the New Testament law of Christ, which has as a part of its expectations the greater embodiment of the third law, of that being that we would not take the Lord's name in vain, but what his name represents, which is his character and his perfection in work, and we don't malign any of that. The only effective way to avoid violating the third commandment is, as your mom used to say, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all. If you say to yourself, well, if what I'm saying is truthful about somebody, then it should be all right for me to say it. Friends, every human being on the earth you can say something bad about them and be truthful. How is that a license? I mean, that just gives you the permission to say nasty things all day long, right? There's no human being on earth that doesn't have a sin that you can't point out if you really wanted to. So the issue isn't there. The issue is what is the constructive purpose in it and the holy purpose in it? If there isn't one to be found, then there's no reason to make the comment. As God is leading in your heart, that's what should drive your behavior in all ways, including what we say. And the Lord's not going to give you a, a heart to speak ill, that's coming out of the flesh. And like James says, we've tamed everything in creation except that. If you think you're solving the problem by just keeping your mouth closed but running the narrative through your head, you still got a problem. Maybe you're a step better than the person who lets it out, but you're, you've still got a problem. And so 
the question then becomes, how do you take all thoughts captive? How do you get to the point where now I actually see past the moment in which they offended me and I start to see the deeper issue that this person has a lack of appreciation of this or that. They need better teaching. They need to know the Lord. They need to be loved differently. And gosh, you know, I've said that same kind of thing to 50 people and I, I'm thankful they don't call me out for it every time I do it. All of these will leave us thinking that could be a whole night of conversation, and that's good. Because the way the New Testament law works is it broadens this thing in such a way that there are no limits anymore. You start to realize the breadth of it, which is the whole point. Which, by the way, as you do this, as we go down all these, it won't take long, if it hasn't already happened, where you'll start to realize, why would I cling to the old? The old now is so insufficient for what I really know I'm supposed to be doing. I can see now why it's an old and fading law, and the new one is the one I'm supposed to give attention to. And, and you see the difference easily. Verse 8 through 11 now is the fourth commandment. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the, seventh, the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the Lord commands the nation to observe a Sabbath day on the last day of each week, which is Saturday in the Jewish calendar, beginning at sundown Friday night. The occasion for this commandment comes out of the creation itself. The Lord asks Israel to repeat the actions that the Lord himself took following the completion of creation after six days. During the first six days, the Lord spent time creating all things. Then he ceased from that work, and that's what the meaning of word rest is in this case, just ceasing from work. And that became the seventh day. And therefore, that final day was set apart from the other days in the sense that it was a different day than all the previous. Like Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. So you have six days are all work days, and then you have a seventh day that's different from the rest. It's a day of rest. So that's what he means by it was set apart. And then he makes it holy in the sense that it is not just set apart in its difference of activity, but it is set apart from sin. Holiness means to be set apart from sin. So the final day of each week is set apart from the rest of the week as a day of rest, just as the Lord himself is set apart from sin. Now, the nature of the command, what it actually asks of Israel is simply to abstain from any form of work. The word work in this case means common labors, the ordinary ways men work to sustain their lives. We could find various examples in the law of the way work was to be curtailed. For example, you've already seen the Lord say you can't collect manna on the Sabbath. That actually was a few days before they got the law. Later, Israel will be told not to gather wood or kindle fires or bear heavy burdens on the day of Sabbath. But in general, overall, the expectation is that men just rest from their normal labors, from their work, having done all the work needed in the prior six days. I mean, that's an important distinction you have to keep in mind. The idea was you did all the work you needed for a seven-day period in six days. And then you could freely rest on the seventh day in the sense of, I don't need to get anything done. I've done it all. It's all finished. I can actually rest today because I'm caught up for my seven days. The Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes took this commandment and greatly increased the burdens on Israel in connection with it over the centuries. They added restriction after restriction to the lifestyle of the Jew to the point of ridiculousness. 
In fact, today, Orthodox Jews who are still committed to trying to keep this in a strict way and according to the rules of Judaism from the pharisaical point of view, Orthodox Jews who observe a Sabbath will often refrain from even turning on light switches in their home on the day of the Sabbath. And in order to make that possible, on the Friday afternoon before sundown, they will go through the house and turn on all the lights they think they're going to need for the next day so they don't have to turn anything off or on until Sunday. Though the Lord's Sabbath existed from the time of creation, so he rested from the time of creation. That's the Lord's Sabbath. That Sabbath happened on day seven and has never stopped. The law of Moses was the first time that the Lord mandated that men follow his example. Some teachers today would argue that since the Sabbath existed from creation, this is a special law that pre-existed and therefore must still exist. So they would argue that believers today are supposed to observe a strict Sabbath, and of course that immediately ensues into an argument over which day, but that's another issue. The Sabbath of the Jews was Saturday. But there is no example in Scripture of God ordering any man to observe the Sabbath prior to giving of the law to Moses. Nor do we see any man practicing the Sabbath prior to the giving of the law. So you never hear God saying it, you never see a man doing it prior to the law of Moses. And even the order concerning manna, which is technically prior to this moment at the mountain, is considered to be an early preview of the law being delivered to them in the desert. Furthermore, God has never, ever required Gentiles to keep a Sabbath. Either Old Testament, New Testament, never. It's only ever been the Jewish people. And the New Testament teaching specifically states that there is no Sabbath day for the Christian. Romans 14.5, Paul says, one person regards one day above another. He's talking about a Sabbath. Another, though, regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, meaning the Sabbath, observes it for the Lord. He who eats does it for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. This is in the context of a discussion of liberty. So those who have a dietary restriction on their heart, follow it. Those who have a Sabbath desire, follow it. But those who don't, don't. Totally within the liberty of the individual believer whether or not to observe a Sabbath. Keep in mind what Sabbath means, though. Sabbath does not mean going to church. Sabbath means stopping all work. If you get up in the morning and go to church and then come home in the afternoon and do yard work, you did not keep a Sabbath in the sense of what the law required under the Old Testament law. And I'm not saying you need to. We've already established you don't. But for the self-righteous among us who like to think they're keeping a Sabbath, watch what you're saying, because chances are you have very rarely, if ever, truly kept a Sabbath. You've just gone to church, and good for you. We should. But that has nothing to do with the Sabbath. So the point is, the point is that we have to be real careful about this one because there is a tendency in the church to preserve this one, even among those who would not preserve the rest of the Ten Commandments. And they do so on this misguided view that it is an obligation to be in church and that is synonymous with keeping the Sabbath. And it's not. God has not ordered it for us. He's told us we have liberty. He's asked us to be in corporate worship on a regular basis, whatever day you want. They're not the same issue. Nevertheless, though, the law of the Sabbath is still found in the law of Christ, but in a new and better way, as are all the laws of the Old Covenant. Here's what Paul teaches in Colossians. Colossians 2.16 Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, to a new moon or a Sabbath day, 
Things which are mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul says this, very important. This is some core theology, actually. Paul says that the commandments of the Old Testament law, like the dietary restrictions of the law, or the seasonal observances, or the festivals, or even the Sabbath day itself, all of those things in the law were all shadows. A shadow is anything in Scripture given in a lesser form to represent something of greater spiritual significance that's coming in the future. In this case, Paul says that greater spiritual significance that we were waiting for in the future was Christ himself. Christ is the fulfillment. These things are shadows, are pictures of him. And when the real comes, the shadow no longer is needed. And I've often used the analogy or the example of how that looks in real life. If you hear my voice from around the corner of a building and you know I'm walking towards you because you can hear my voice and you recognize who I am, and as I come near to the corner, you see my shadow on the ground as it's being cast in front of me, but you can't see me yet. And if I stop for a moment and keep talking to you from behind the wall, you see my shadow, right? What do you probably look at while you talk to me? You might be inclined to look at the shadow because what else do you have to look at? You know the shadow is not me. And in fact, once I appear from around the corner, you'll stop looking at the shadow and you'll start looking at me. If you kept looking at the shadow, we would think you're very strange. Well, think of spiritual shadows in the same way. Until we see the real thing, all we have is the shadow. So we honor the shadow, so to speak. Once the real thing has come, who in their right mind chooses the shadow over the real thing? No one. No one who understands what they're saying or doing. So dietary rules, the festivals of the Old Testament law, the Sabbath day, those were carefully constructed shadows created by God to teach us about Christ. During the creation account, the Lord takes a day to rest. We know the Lord does not get tired. So it begs the question, why did he rest? And the answer is, it wasn't a matter of physical need for God. It was to teach us about Christ. It was to establish this shadow that he intended to later take and incorporate into the law so that it would be observed on an ongoing basis, which itself was another part of building this shadow so that in the day Christ came, all that it's teaching would come to fulfillment. Now, what was it teaching? And how did Jesus fulfill it? Well, what do we learn about Christ from the Sabbath? The Sabbath in the law taught that a man's work can come to an end and that rest from work follows and that rest is a good thing, something that you would look forward to at the end of each week. But under the law, rest had a limit. Before long, the Sabbath ended and you went back to work. So the law provided for a rest that was at best temporary. And in that sense, it could never fully satisfy. There's a reason why we look forward to retirement. It's the final act of rest from work, at least in the employment sense for, for most of us, right? That kind of rest is the rest men long for and never get. The rest from all work, the true rest that God enjoyed after the work of creation. The Lord's Sabbath is fundamentally different from the Sabbath he gave to men under the law. It's a Sabbath that once it started, it never ended. And it was complete. The work of creation has never started again. All that is was created after six days, which should lead, is intended to lead men to a question. How can I get a share of that rest? How can I get a share of the Lord's rest, one that never ceases? And the book of Hebrews gives us the answer in chapter 4. I'm just going to read 10 verses. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, and he's speaking about the Jews who wandered in the desert, the people of the Exodus we're studying now. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who had formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, I have an extended teaching on this in the Hebrews lessons online. I'd encourage you, if you're interested, to go listen. There's a lot of detail there worth taking some time with. But for tonight's sake, we can summarize on a couple of key points. The writer was concerned here for a church that had folks within it who may not have come to faith, but were just hanging around in the crowd of the church. And the writer uses the term rest in this passage as a description of salvation, of coming to faith. Then in verse 3, he teaches that believers in Christ enter, or another way to say it is, they share in the rest of the Lord, the Sabbath of the Lord. The Lord, though, speaks about the disobedient, those of Israel, not being allowed to enter his rest. And then the writer goes through to explain what that really meant. He points out that they did get into the promised land eventually. And even after that, David in the Psalms talked about the need to enter God's rest. So the writer is saying, if all God meant when he said enter my rest was enter my promised land, then why was he still having David talk about it years after they had been in the land? There's something much better than the land in mind here. We're talking about salvation in the eternal sense, entering the rest of salvation in the coming kingdom. That's the Lord's Sabbath, the one that started and never ends. And that is the one you get when you're with the Lord in his kingdom, which is only by faith. That's the permanent rest every man should long for. That's the rest that means a true ceasing of our work. But the Hebrew writer tells us that the ultimate intent then of the Sabbath rest was to picture the spiritual rest that you obtain through faith in Christ. A rest not merely from earthly labor, but a rest from the works of salvation. From an attempt, a fruitless attempt, to work our way into heaven. A work that would never end and will never result in rest. By entering into the new covenant, we enter into the Lord's Sabbath by never again bearing a burden of working for salvation. We rest in Christ's work and therefore in the Sabbath that is Christ. So the law of Christ for all of us as believers has granted to us the obedience of a Sabbath in the sense that through our faith and our reliance on Christ's work, we no longer need to observe the shadow of a once a week Sabbath we are actually resting in the fulfillment of it by resting in Christ's salvation. So literally, every day is a Sabbath. Have you ever heard a pastor say that? As a Christian, every day is our Sabbath. What he's saying is, 
we enjoy the true fulfillment of that word in our daily walk of faith, whereas all the Jew got to experience was a shadow, which was in itself really a tease, a once a week short term rest that never really solved the fundamental problem of our work, that is, of our labors. So when you say to yourself, how do I keep the Sabbath today? Are you saved? Yes. Well, then you're keeping it in that liberty. What are you going to do with your time? That's the beauty of it. No more laws about light switches and elevator buttons. Right? That's where Christ says, my burden is light. You didn't have to do the six days of work, and you got the rest. Now the fifth commandment. Exodus 20:12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now that was elbowing David over here. The fifth commandment requires, simply put, that Israel show respect for their parents. The word for honor literally means, in Hebrew, something weighty or burdensome. It is being used euphemistically here to mean something of honor, something weighty, in other words, something of significance. But I think both the literal and the euphemistic are intended here. As children, we are to honor our parents' authority. That means honoring them by obeying them, respecting them, trusting them. For no reason, by the way, besides the fact that they are our parents. Not because they have proven themselves to us to be worth our honor or respect, but simply because they are our parents. Then, though, as we become adults and they come to depend on us at some point, we gladly bear that burden. So they are both weighty in respect and they can be burdensome in the sense of being dependent on us. But in both cases, we honor them by continuing to respect and defend them and serve them. That is the sense of this commandment. Now, we may not always agree with what they think or with what they say. As much as possible, though, we show deference and respect for their views and for their needs. Now, this commandment is the first to include a promise of blessing for obedience among the ten. Since the commandment was given to Israel by that covenant, then we know the promise is limited to Israel as well. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. If the laws were given to Israel, then the promises are for Israel. If Israel continues to observe this command, their obedience will prolong, notice, their time in their land. The promise is interesting for two reasons. First, the fact that the Lord is promising to prolong Israel in their land implies that he knows Israel will one day be required to leave the land. He's prolonging, he's putting off the time of departure. And we know that nation was eventually dispossessed from their land. They were scattered into the nations of the world as a result of idolatry and disobedience under the law. Second thing that's interesting about this promise the Lord says the key, notice this, the key to Israel avoiding that punishment of disbursement is a strong, godly family. Therefore, you conclude that a breakdown in the family was the starting point for the sin and the idolatry of Israel, which became their judgment and their disbursement. And eventually it led to them being judged under the old covenant. So the family structure is the lowest or base common denominator within society from which God rules over the hearts of people. When the family unit becomes weak, and it does so when it tolerates disrespect and disobedience and rebellion and dishonor, the stage then is set for the corruption of society as a whole. This was Israel's fate. It's certainly happening in our world today, just as Paul predicted in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, and then he goes on. It's interesting that that makes the list when you think about what's around it. Things like treacherous, unholy, 
irreconcilable, reckless, conceited. And then you have that disobedient to parents right there in the middle. As with the earlier commandments, the Pharisees preached obedience to this commandment while disobeying it in practice. And there's one particular passage in Matthew that's perfect on this point. Matthew 15:4. This is Jesus speaking. He says, for God said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, speaking to the Pharisees, whoever says to his mother or father, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. Well, he is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. The Pharisees recognized that honoring Parents meant providing financial need when the circumstances warranted. They understood that was implicitly part of honoring. But to avoid actually having to do that, the Pharisees made this exception that if you had given money to the temple such that now you didn't feel like you had enough left for mom and dad, that could be justification for not supporting them because I I gave money to to the church, mom. I don't have anything for you. Now, he's not saying you had no money left. They're saying that what might have gone to them went to the tithe instead. Sorry, I don't have for you. Jesus says that's hypocritical because it's contrived to avoid doing one's duty for your own selfish interests. How has this commandment been improved upon in the law of Christ? How do we see it reflected now for the New Testament believer? Well, first, it's simply repeated in several places. One example is Ephesians 6.1. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So Paul, in the restatement of that commandment, has extended it to the New Testament saint, though in a new form, in a slightly changed form. Believers now are promised to enjoy a long life, whereas Israel was promised to see their time in the land prolonged. Now, how can we imagine that disobedience to this commandment in the New Testament law of Christ, how might it lead to a shortened life? Well, first, there's always the possibility that the Lord might execute supernatural judgment against disobedient children. I tell my kids about that possibility all the time. Like my mom used to say, when I misbehave, something like, I hope you have twins just like you. That's like the worst curse a mom can do, by the way. But even natural experience tells us how rebellion to parental authority can lead to a shortened life, right? Not respecting a parent's wisdom can lead to accident, injury, danger, disease, assorted calamities. It's not hard to imagine that. Like Adam in the garden. When we set aside the instructions of a wise parent, we set ourselves on a road to destruction. It's just that simple. Mark Twain once said something like, when I was a teenager, I was amazed at how stupid my dad was. And then when I turned 20, I was amazed at how much he had learned. (laughs) Heard something like that. So the law of Christ incorporates this commandment plainly and just restates it. So we don't have to go any further than that to see it repeated. But it also broadens it, and in a surprising way. Jesus taught that believers become part of a new family when they come to faith. The body of Christ. And when we do that, we gain new family relationships, spiritual family relationships. And those relationships, Jesus said, take precedence over even our natural family relationships. In Mark 10... 28, Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake 
but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So notice Jesus speaks of the disciples being forced here to leave family behind, natural family behind for the sake of the gospel. So he's speaking here about priorities, not absolutes. So no believer is automatically required to turn their back on their natural family in order to be a disciple of Jesus. That's not an absolute requirement. But if the natural family, if our natural family makes an ultimatum to us that we choose between them or following Christ, if it comes down to that, in other words, then the priority is we have to choose Christ. And when that happens, if that happens, Jesus says, because they inherit a new family, a family of believers in the body of Christ, they will find what they lost more than sufficiently replaced. This new family of mothers, brothers, and so on are the family of God. And speaking as one who comes from a natural family that is virtually devoid of faith, except for my immediate family, this is something that comforts. The comfort is this, that in the eternal the family I know as family will be those who are there by faith like I am, and I'll be feeling them as family more so than the natural family I knew here and now. As hard as that may be, that's the promise. And Jesus says we'll have a hundred times as much in that sense. But in the meantime, this new family must be honored every bit as much as we have honored the natural family, and even more if the two are in competition. And this commandment then would have to apply. We obey elders and authorities over us in the church. We honor them. We respect and share the burdens of older members in the fellowship, just like we would our parents. We respect the needs of widows. We respect the needs of orphans in the opposite sense of younger family. And if push comes to shove, we honor the family of God over our earthly family. Hopefully we never have to make that choice. One last commandment for the time we have tonight. The sixth commandment. The text is short, verse 13, you shall not murder. Next to Jesus wept, it's probably the shortest verse in the Bible. This command prohibits the unlawful taking of human life. The commandment says nothing about the killing of animals. Murder is, by definition, the unlawful taking of a human life by another human. Animals can't murder one another, and we can't murder an animal just by the sheer definition of the word. So this commandment deals specifically with a man taking another man's life in an unlawful fashion. Some think the sixth commandment outlaws all forms of killing, including capital punishment and acts of war. But there is a difference between lawful and unlawful killing, both in Scripture and in the laws of our society, which descend ultimately from the law of God. Murder is the unlawful taking of a human life, and the word murder in Hebrew is ratzak, but Hebrew uses a totally different word for killing in a lawful way. Lawful killing is the taking of a human life in keeping with the rule of law. For example, God's law provides for the taking of human life when certain serious crimes are committed under his law. And in war, God prescribes for the killing of combatants, and even in some cases for the killing of an entire city, to further his purpose in establishing Israel and eradicating sin. Now, when we act under the rule of law to carry out justice or to participate in war, we are not automatically committing murder. However, if the government has become corrupt or cruel, or if war is conducted in unjust ways, then killing can become murder in those cases. 
So the question is whether our act of killing is justified and proper according to law. It's a matter of about how these decisions can be made lawfully. For example, confusion comes from conflating the rights and responsibilities of government with those of individuals. An individual has the right to take another human's life lawfully only in defense of self or others. The New Testament even echoes this right for men to defend oneself with deadly force, if need be, even Christians. This is how Jesus encouraged the disciples to be prepared for rough times after his crucifixion. He said this in Luke 22:36. He said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which referred to me has its fulfillment. They said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. The Greek word for sword in that passage refers to a small dagger, which was something commonly carried by an individual for self-defense purposes. So is Jesus encouraging the taking of life for the purpose of advancing the gospel? No, those are the crusades. That's not biblical. He's talking about the available option to every human being to defend themselves against an attack. There is nothing in Scripture that says as a Christian, we are now without defense for our personal safety. There's nothing in Scripture that says, because I'm a Christian, now at any provocation, I must roll over and expose my tummy and let them do what they want to me, so to speak. That is not a sign of holiness. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The key to understanding is to remember that God is the giver of life. Therefore, he has the authority to determine when it may be taken. God has authorized human government to take human life at times according to his specific instructions. And for an individual, he's authorized it in the case of self-defense. For example, beginning in Genesis 9, after the flood, the Lord delegated authority to human government to take human life for capital crimes. In Genesis 9, 6, he said, whoever sheds man's blood by man, listen, by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Then Paul expounds on that in the New Testament when he says in Romans 13, 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it, meaning government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For government does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So Paul reminds us that government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. And the term bear the sword is a reference to its right to execute men, to take their life for capital crimes. And when he says they don't bear it for nothing, what he's saying is God didn't give it to the government for no good reason. He gave it to the government so the government could act as a minister in the restraint of evil. And then he asks the question, imagine what kind of world it would be if evil men were not restrained by government. He says, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do you want a world in which everyone does whatever they want with no fear of authority? Can you imagine that world? Secondly, we know that God has commanded Israel at times to prosecute war. So in the case of capital crimes, it is consistent with God's law that government can act to take a life when that's somebody having taken life. Secondly, we know God has commanded Israel to prosecute war against ungodly people, people who stood in the way of God's purposes with Israel. And you may ask yourself, well, how does that reconcile with murder? How can God be a God that prosecutes war? Well, remember, all men die 
And the day and the manner of their death is appointed by God, according to Scripture. If you die in your sleep tonight, God took your life. If you die on the battlefield at the hands of a soldier whom God sent to kill you, God took your life. God is no more guilty of a crime when he takes your life in battle than when he took your life in bed. The manner is irrelevant. God is the giver. He is the taker. He appoints the time and manner of life and the time and manner of death. And we have nothing to say about those times or manners. So therefore, when Israel waged war, for example, in Canaan, according to God's direction, by definition, they were acting lawfully because the giver of life is also the taker and he delegated to them to take their lives. And the irony is, if they disobey, those people still die eventually. In the eternal sense of things, nothing is changed by obedience or disobedience to that order. The only thing that's changed is our willingness to obey or not. Let's just recap real quickly so I don't leave anybody confused. In the law, an Old Testament saint was commanded not to take another person's life except in cases of self-defense when necessary. And then furthermore, government could take life under rule of law and armies could take life as a function of war in keeping with God's orders. Both government and war can become murder if they're done in an unlawful way. But as an individual, I cannot become the vigilante and decide I'm going to take so-and-so's life because I know they committed murder. I'm not the government. So that would be murder on my part as well. Now, to the New Testament requirement. All of what we just said still applies because it's also incorporated in New Testament teaching, but it also is broadened in some dramatic ways. Perhaps most famously, Jesus broadening this commandment in the Beatitudes when he says in Matthew 5:21, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So the New Testament law of Christ prohibits unlawful killing, just as the Old Testament law did. But Jesus takes that law a step ahead in a big way. He says the intent of the sixth commandment has always been to require respect and love for all persons. So even if you refrain from picking up a knife and killing someone, if you still hated them in your heart, the fact that you didn't actually pick up the knife doesn't buy you any credit. We are still convicted by our thoughts and desires. And the law of Christ demands we take control of those attitudes toward other people. Even a careless word spoken against someone is a harm that violates this commandment. Then a few verses later we read Matthew 5:38. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So the Old Testament law prohibited murder. But in other places, the law permitted certain types of non-lethal retribution for crimes that were committed against persons. The purpose of that form of justice under the law was not to encourage retribution, but to limit retribution. For example, a man that was blinded by the negligence of some other person had the right under the Old Testament law, but not the requirement to demand that the offender lose his eye as well. 
The intent of the rule was to ensure that the punishment fit the crime. Our Eighth Amendment to the Constitution has the same basic intent. But the law didn't require that the injured person actually take advantage of that opportunity. The victim could forego taking retribution, which now we understand from the law of Christ is the loving way to imitate the Father who is in heaven. Jesus said forgiveness and mercy are the more perfect way that mirrors our Father in heaven. So the New Testament law demands that we be perfect like our Father by showing mercy and forgiveness for personal attacks rather than choosing to seek retribution. That doesn't mean that you can't participate in the criminal justice system or defend your life in self-defense. Notice in verse 44, Jesus spoke about those who persecute us. So the point is that when we are singled out for our faith, we should expect mistreatment and therefore we shouldn't hold it against the person. Just as Jesus said nothing against those who persecuted him, we follow his example. We do nothing against those who persecute us. So there is a distinction, I think, being made here between sheer crime versus something that is spiritually driven. Though that's a matter of our discernment and we'll have to make a decision about that. You're never wrong to withhold retribution. And I don't think you're ever wrong to withhold your defense, even to the point of martyrdom, especially if you feel led to do that. But you're also not wrong to do what is lawful and right in circumstances where that's an option. Jesus was simply expanding the law to say, while the law made these things possible, what is truly holy and good is to forego those things in the case of persecution. So we're to guard ourselves in personal relationships from showing malice and show mercy whenever we can. Next week, we're going to finish the first 10 laws. We'll move on to the rest. But you can see the pattern already. I mean, this isn't hard to see. After a while, you realize what was said in the old was a snippet of what was truly meant. And its depth was far greater than could be represented in those individual laws. Now that we begin to see that, it quickly becomes apparent that what was given in the old is not the thing you want to cling on to now. Because if you did, you'd be sinning left and right. Let's go to the prayer. Father, thank you for our patience as well as for our understanding tonight. Thank you for the conviction that comes with knowing your law so well. And at the same time, appreciating that the law of Christ in us has no limit. So tonight, with what we've learned, I pray specifically, Father, that we would have hearts that um, constrain our tongue and our thinking toward others, toward you first, Father, in your name, and then to those you have created in your likeness, to our parents, to the family of God that is our new family, that we be mindful of all these things and live according to what we've learned so that we may please you. Convict us at all times where necessary, Father, and give us the power to listen and obey better. Bring us back next week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.